The Death of Yoseline in 2010, a book which highlighted many of the issues related to the plight of undocumented migrants to our country. In subsequent years, the Common Read selections encourage us to promote an understanding and acceptance of pluralism by engaging in interfaith dialogue. They reminded us that discrimination, segregation, and oppression of African Americans are all active in this country, despite laws to the contrary. And these common read books taught us about the unfair labor practices and poverty level wages suffered by the majority of food service workers in the US. Last year's common read urged us to raise our liberal voices in the moral and ethical debates of our times, our liberal religious voices, to raise those voices because the debates are often dominated by conservative Christian voices. And all of these books can be purchased through the UUA bookstore, and all of the discussion guides that go along with them are available online at no cost at uua.org. Today I'm going to share with you some reflections from the 2015 Common Read, a book entitled Just Mercy, a story of justice and redemption by Brian Stevenson. How many of you have read it? Great. I am grateful to Lorraine Groberg for agreeing to lead a discussion of this beautifully written book. And I know that the 12 of you who participated um, can be instrumental in continuing the conversation, perhaps, during coffee hour. Brian Stevenson is a gifted and dedicated attorney who founded the Equal Justice Initiative. The Equal Justice Initiative is, and I quote, a legal practice dedicated to defending the poor, the wrongly condemned, and those trapped in the furthest reaches of our criminal justice system. That includes children sentenced to life without parole, and the mentally challenged and the mentally ill who often have harsh sentences imposed upon them. Stevenson's Just Mercy is not what I'd call a fun book, but it is often spellbinding. Once you get started reading it, once you are appalled by what is happening to some of the most vulnerable people in our society, you may find it difficult to stop reading. My hope is that my reflection today will, at the very least, open your eyes to some of the things happening in our country in the name of justice. And even better, encourage you to make at least one commitment to learning more or taking action. But before I go any further, I want to make a few disclaimers. The first is that I am not an expert on our criminal justice system. Second, much of what I will be sharing today comes straight from Brian Stevenson's book and from the UUA study guide. And finally, I am still learning every single day how much I take my white privilege for granted. And I struggle every single day to keep my blinders off and see things more clearly. About four months ago, I came one step closer to my Medicare birthday, <laughs> which I used to share with a nephew. 
He would have been 19 last October. If in early February of 2015, he hadn't become Rockford, Illinois' sixth homicide victim of the year. Jalen was the son of our niece Cheryl, who is white, and her husband, Jeff, who is African-American. A handsome, athletic young man, Jalen had fallen in with the wrong crowd and was doing some things he should not have been doing when he was shot in the head late on a cold winter's night. and left to die by the side of the road. While there are no known witnesses, Jalen's killer still has not been apprehended in the years since his murder. The issues around this case are, of course, complex. But sometimes I have to ask myself, how much of the mystery of Jalen's death remains unsolved because he was just another young black man? Jalen's dad, Jeff, has been in and out of prison a few times on drug charges. Thankfully, he has not had to serve some of the ridiculously long sentences you'll read about in Stevenson's book. I'm not saying that there wasn't some wrongdoing on Jeff's part, but the whole process has been very tough on the family. Separating them for long periods of time, straining their ability to survive financially, Jeff was not allowed to attend his own son's funeral. Upon release from prison, finding a job was tough. Ex-cons have a very hard time reintegrating into the work world and back into society in general. But I'm happy to say that right now, Jeff, as far as I know from my Facebook conversations with our niece, he seems to be doing pretty well right now. I've been on the fringes of these family stories trying to provide comfort from afar. My heart breaking and Gary's too over the pain our extended family must bear. But we haven't really done much besides grieve with them, offer emotional support, and recognize perhaps more than we once did our white privilege the fact that we just happen to be born with white skin in an affluent country without earning or deserving it. We are afforded advantages and opportunities that we don't even have to think about, that we take for granted. I struggled with how to summarize the complexity of the issues and the impact of the stories told in Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy. There's no way to do the book justice pun intended, in 20 or so minutes. I finally decided that Stevenson's words are both eloquent and powerful, so I'm going to read parts of the introduction to Just Mercy and briefly illustrate some of the author's points with snippets of the stories he tells, hopefully with just enough information to encourage you to read the whole book if you haven't already. Stevenson says his book is about getting closer to mass incarceration and extreme punishment in America. It's about how easily we condemn people in this country and the injustice we create when we allow fear, anger, and distance to shape the way 
we treat the most vulnerable among us. When Stevenson first began visiting prisoners on death row in the early 1980s, he tells us that America was in the early stages of a radical transformation that would turn us into an unprecedentedly harsh and punitive nation. A transformation that would result in mass imprisonment that has no historical parallel. He continues by saying, today our country has the highest rate of incarceration in the world. The prison population has increased from 300,000 people in the early 1970s to 2.3 million people at the time of the writing of the book. And it's fairly recent, within the last couple years. There are nearly 6 million people on probation or parole. One in every 15 people born in the United States in 2001 is expected to go to jail or prison. One in every three black male babies born in this century is expected to be incarcerated. Unbelievable. I don't know how many of you noticed. I'm not sure where I put it. In this morning's paper, there was an article about our state. Eh, oh, right here. Arizona tops in guaranteeing private prisons new customers. There's some eye-opening information in here, and I encourage you to read the article. It touches on many of the issues that Stevenson um, talks about. So Stevenson continues, We have shot, hanged, gassed, electrocuted, and lethally injected hundreds of people to carry out legally sanctioned executions. Thousands more await their execution on death row. Some states have no minimum age for prosecuting children as adults. We've sent a quarter million kids to adult jails and prisons to serve long prison terms, some under the age of 12. For years, we've been the only country in the world that condemns children to life imprisonment without parole. Nearly 3,000 juveniles have been sentenced to die in prison. Stevenson uses personal examples throughout his book to illustrate the extent of these points. Here's one story about a boy named Charlie. Charlie was only 14 when he shot and killed his mother's boyfriend, George. After George came home in a drunken rage and knocked Charlie's mother unconscious. Now, Charlie was a good kid, a kid who got good grades, not a troublemaker. He was a very small boy for his age. He could not revive his mom. He thought she was dead. Filled with panic and rage beside himself, he went into the bedroom where Charlie, where George was by then passed out and shot him. Then Charlie heard his mother groan on the floor of the kitchen where she lay in a pool of blood, and he ran to call 911. 
Charlie, already traumatized, was arrested and taken to a small county jail for adults where he was repeatedly gang raped before attorney Stevenson secured his transfer to a juvenile facility. True story. Here's another one. In 1990, Ian Manuel, 13 years old, 13 years old, was coerced by two older boys into helping with a robbery. Ian shot the targeted woman when she tried to resist. He pled guilty, hoping for leniency, but instead at 13 years of age, he was sentenced to life without parole. Because he was so small and young, the prison officials decided to keep him away from the adult prisoners. They didn't even have a uniform he could wear. They had to cut it and make it short enough to fit him. Their solution to keeping him away from the adult prisoners was to put him in solitary confinement. He remained there for 18 years, not ultimately to protect him from the adult men, but to extend his punishment. Because every time he hurt himself, every time he acted out, every time he attempted suicide, he was assigned more months of isolation but he was going crazy in solitary confinement. The woman that Ian shot begged and begged that he get a reduced sentence, but her pleas were ignored. I am happy that just last month our president banned solitary confinement for juveniles housed in federal prisons. He also supported the recommendations put forth by Attorney General Loretta Lynch and the Justice, Depar Justice Department excuse me, to reform the federal prison system. The President's January 25th op-ed piece in the Washington Post is worth reading for more information about some of the same issues that Stevenson highlights in his book. Stevenson tells us, quote, Hundreds of thousands of nonviolent offenders have been forced to spend decades in prison because we've created laws that make writing a bad check or committing a petty theft or minor property crime an offense that can result in life imprisonment. We have declared a costly war on people with substance abuse problems. There are more than a half million people in state or federal prisons for drug offenses today, up from just 41,000 in 1980. The collateral consequences of mass incarceration have been equally profound. We ban poor women and inevitably their children from receiving food stamps and public housing if they have prior drug convictions. We've created a new caste system that forces thousands of people into homelessness, bans them from living with their families and in their communities, and renders them virtually unemployable. End of quote. This extensive and harsh criminalization of poverty, drug addiction, and mental illness has resulted in many tragic stories. Consider the story of Marcia, who was living with her husband and five children in a FEMA camper trailer following Hurricane Ivan. 
She could not afford prenatal care when she discovered she was pregnant with her sixth child. She had problems during the pregnancy, placental abruption unbeknownst to her, and she delivered a stillborn child. Marcia and her husband grieved over the loss of this child that they named Timothy, but they could not afford burial expenses, so instead they buried Timothy in a small marked grave next to their trailer. A nosy neighbor and an unsubstantiated medical opinion without benefit of autopsy resulted in 10 years of wrongful imprisonment for Marcia while her family struggled to survive without her. Unfortunately, there is no shortage of such stories. Stories like that of Trina, a child of poverty and abuse, whose mental and physical health was steadily deteriorating during the 52 years of her imprisonment without chance for parole. Her crime at age 14 was accidentally setting a fire that killed two people when she and some friends were using matches to find their way across a dark house to be with some boys that they were um, kind of had crushes on. We're asked to consider, too, the story of Herbert, a Vietnam vet suffered from, suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and other traumatic events of childhood. He inadvertently caused the death of a child while attempting to impress and win back his girlfriend. So the stories go on and on and on. And as you already know, the stories include many wrongly convicted and many wrongly executed. Where is the hope? Where is the justice? Where is the mercy? Thankfully, Stevenson shares some of those stories, too. Stories about the saving power of human connection when imprisoned people are not forgotten, when they receive letters or visits. Stories about erroneous convictions overturned, death row inmates exonerated, he told the story of a hardcore racist prison guard who insisted on humiliating him. Stevenson is black, the guard was white, and the guard demanded that Stevenson and an attorney, an attorney submit to a strip search before allowing Stevenson to visit the prisoner who was to be his client. This same guard ended up softening, understanding, and appreciating the work that Stevenson was doing for prisoners, many who had been victims of bad foster parenting, like the guard himself. So Stevenson's connection with other people who had experienced trauma in their young lives, like the guard himself had experienced, helped him to see things in a different way. Stevenson reminds us that each of us is more important than the worst thing we've ever done. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. We are all more than the worst thing we've ever done. 
Although Stevenson has been tempted to give up his work many times, he keeps at it because he has learned to recognize his own brokenness as well as the brokenness of our society. And this brokenness allows him to see the more in every person he meets, prisoner or not. Stevenson has the kind of hope that Vaclav Havel called an orientation of the spirit. I think he was talking about soul force, our theme for this month. Stevenson says, this orientation of the spirit, that's the kind of hope that creates a willingness to position oneself in a hopeless place and be a witness. It's a kind of hope that allows one to believe in a better future, even in the face of abusive power. That kind of hope makes one strong. That kind of hope makes one strong. Stevenson's book asks us to learn to become witnesses, to nurture that kind of hope. When we recognize that all of us have been hurt, that all of us are broken in some ways, we can look beyond the inflammatory labels our media so loves to use, rapist, murderer, sex offender, felon. We can see other human beings caught up in complex layers of fear and prejudice. And we discover that this web of hurt and brokenness in which we live is also a web of healing and, and mercy. And it is rife with possibilities for reconciliation. Can we promote healing and mercy and reconciliation? Will we close our eyes, shut our ears to the voices of the voiceless, block out information about those who are victims of the many injustices of our system of laws and punishments? Or will we open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to those most at risk in this system. There are a number of things you can do. I have a list here. I'm going to um, post it in the newsletter. And I would invite you to consider what is the one thing that you can do the one thing that you can do. There's a story from the New Testament book of John about a woman who was condemned and the sentence was stoning her to death, which is, was, I guess, a common sentence in those days. And Jesus advocated mercy for the woman. He said, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. It seems that today, self-righteousness, fear, and anger have caused many stones to be hurled at the people who have fallen down, even when we know we should forgive or show compassion. And Stevenson says, we just can't stand by and let this happen. We may not be the ones hurling the stones, but we can try to catch some of them. Stevenson urges us to be stone catchers, to find ways to help connect with and protect the most vulnerable among us. 
I'm going to close this reflection with words from former UUA President William Sinkford, found in a little meditation manual called Voices from the Margins. Spirit of life and love, dear God of all nations, there is so much work to do. We have only begun to imagine justice and mercy. Help us hold fast to our vision of what can be. May we see hope in our history and find the courage and the voice to work for that constant rebirth of freedom and justice. That is our dream. Amen.